good evening. The power of Christ compels you! The power of Christ compels you! Oh yeah! What you've got there? will be your dinner. Do I look like someone who cares what God thinks? Whoever is bitten by a werewolf and lives becomes a werewolf himself. What? I'm going to give the people what they want. Sensation, horror, shock. Send them out in the streets to tell their friends how wonderful it is to be scared to death. I think we're dead. I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. Without people, we are nothing. Alone. Bad. Friend. Good. Whoa, 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 whoa. This week on The Wolfman Meets, we have with us Sid Garcia Heberger, who is the proprietor, not owner, is that correct? Proprietor is a good word. Of the Crest Theater. How long have you been doing that? Uh, I've been here for 27 years. Very, very cool. I'm on 28. Okay. Can you tell us a, a little bit of history about the Crest Theater? Absolutely. So the building's been here for about 100 years. It opened originally as a vaudeville house. The Empress Theater opened by Sullivan and Considine. Sullivan and Considine, as it turns out, was running a bit of a racket. And so what they would do is they would come into town. They would open up, uh, they would take over a, an existing building, do shows, and then fundraise to get people to invest in building a theater. And they built the Empress Theater here in Sacramento. And then what they would do is then they would move on to another city and with the money that the current theater was generating, they'd backfill their other investors. So basically it was like a Ponzi or a pyramid scheme. Consequently, the Empress was only the Empress for about a year and a half because uh, Considine and Sullivan went to jail. And so the theater was taken over by, I don't know if it was originally Fox West Coast or if it was just a Hippodrome Theater Company, but it was taken over and then op renamed the Hippodrome and operated still as a vaudeville house doing, you know, all manner of, you know, live acts, jugglers, magicians, animal acts. There were cages, a full scene shop, you name it. Uh, along comes the motion picture, uh, becomes more and more of that is the entertainment of the day. And so by the mid to late 20s, the Hippodrome is pretty much a movie theater that occasionally would have vaudeville acts or would have some live element to the show. In the mid 40s, there were plans to renovate the Hippodrome. It was starting to get dog-eared. It had been 33 years in operation, so it it needed a scrub up. <laughs> so there were plans to renovate, but not a major renovation. And then in uh, September of 46, the marquee in front of the theater collapsed. And it, it was a early morning, Sunday morning, uh, killed three people. Oof. And at that point, it was decided that it would probably be best to do a major renovation instead of just a, a minor renovation. Mm -hmm. And so it was decided to gut the brick walls of the Hippodrome, just completely strip it back to the brick walls, and then rebuild a new theater inside that 
shell. Oh, wow. And so the crest, as you see it today, was, is actually late 40s, a late 40s interior in a 1913 reinforced shell. <laughs> crest opened October 6, 1949 as strictly a movie house. Um, played all of the major pictures. It was among the top three movie houses in Sacramento. Mm -hmm. You had the Alhambra, you had the Fox, the Senator Fox, and you had the Crest. Okay. Played films well into the late 60s with great success. And then as downtown declined, uh, so did the theaters downtown. At that point, the Crest was kind of a dollar. We would think of it as a dollar house, but it was probably more like a 25 cent house. Oh, wow. And I had somebody once tell me that the theaters, I think it was Esquire, The Crest, and The Fox were like janky, triple bill action pictures. Mm -hmm. And The Crest was jankiest of them all. <laughs> Right. So there's a distinction. There's actually rumors that there's some holes in the etched aluminum behind the bar. Mm -hmm. And I have heard from more than one person, and it could be mythology, sure. but there are bullet holes. <laughs> and if really? you go and look at them, it's like, <laughs> yeah, that that looks like a bullet hole. All right, pressed as gangster, huh? Yeah, <laughs> a little bit, a little bit. <laughs> So ran, um, you know, doing the triple bill action thing, you know, into the 70s, closed as a continuously operating movie house in 1979. And then there were a few different operators who came in and tried to make a go of it here at the Crest. Cooper Cinemas, Man Cinemas, Morgan Cinemas, but none of them could sustain it. Downtown was declining even more so there was the advent of the the multiplex you had television cutting into your you know your entertainment time cable television yeah cable was yeah right in that zone also there was a gentleman by the name of herb liverette who took over the theater and was going to do a kind of like a, a dinner theater sort of a concept they pulled all of the seats out of the lower section, mm -hmm. threw him into the basement. Glad they did that. And was, you know, he was trying to like put on shows and make money as he went to support the conversion of the theater into this dinner theater concept. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't really moving along very quickly, shall we say. And so he started renting the theater out to clear and distinct ideas. That's Stuart Katz. He ran the Club Minimal. Right. Uh, over behind Sac City. So Stuart was doing his bigger shows here. Mm -hmm. And so that was actually my introduction to the crest was, when was those that? punk shows. Um, in like 84, 85. Okay, so like the first few years of the 80s is when it was kind of really downtrodden. I think it pretty much was on a downward slope all through the 70s. Oh, okay, okay. And then, you know, there were various attempts to breathe new life into it, but that... Is a, is a dinner cinema the, the 
kind of like those Vegas things where there's tables and people sit at them and yeah. eat and drink and watch someone sing or perform. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Okay. Hence removing those um, seats out of the floor area. Mm-hmm. But that made it perfect for punk rock shows, right? <laughs> Absolutely. It all happens for a reason. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I saw a Flipper, uh, Red Cross, um, Dead well, before, Kennedys. Before we get to that, when you were talking about how Stuart Katz was doing these first shows, mm-hmm, and that was kind of mm-hmm. when you came in. Up until then, were you doing things in the community before then, as far as art and shows and, and comedy, or, or what What were you kind of doing at that time? I was pretty much fresh to Sacramento and, f- oh, okay. and fresh out of high school. Okay. So at that time, I was, <laughs> well, I was hanging out at the Showcase Theater a lot, watching, you know, independent and art films and double bills and that kind of stuff. A little bit of time at the Tower Theater. And then I was also heavily into the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Very cool. So I was in a shadow cast that was performing every Saturday night at the Showcase Theater, as a matter of fact. So that's that's what I was doing mostly. I was uh, going to college and I was studying diligently, just in case my parents are listening. And seeing a lot of shows, a, a lot of shows. Yeah. Do you remember the the first show that you went to here in Sacramento? The first show I went to, well, the first show I went to here in Sacramento was during high school. Okay. My folks drove us down, uh, my best friend and I, and we saw Devo at the Memorial Auditorium in 1981. Wow. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. <laughs> the Beautiful World Tour. Yeah? Yeah. <laughs> Just to add a little cherry on top oh, there. Yeah, <laughs> good stuff. Where where were you? Where are you from? Where where were you? Oh, born? I'm from Setter Creek. Oh, okay, just about an hour away here yeah. from here in the foothills. Were you born there and grew up? And born there, grew up there, migrated here, and then migrated here. Okay, and where were you going to college? Uh, at Sac State. Okay. Mm-hmm. Major. Uh, computer science. Nice. Yeah, ones and zeros, baby. <laughs> <laughs> Got that? Got that? Was it matrix language? Is that, <laughs> that what the kids call it? Well, you know, I don't, I don't remember much of that stuff mm. anymore. Very interesting. Yeah. <laughs> you still dabble in that at all? Not in the slightest. No. But I kind of, it helps me understand some of the magic in the in the box. Sure. And like when I'm plunking around with my e blasts, I can go into what we used to call reveal codes back in the word perfect days, but you can go into the HTML. And just because I have that understanding, I can kind of stumble my way through things and like, sure. oh, here's, this is what's making this font keep rearing its ugly head. <laughs> Kill it at its root. <laughs> Still probably comes in very helpful. It's not a bad skill. Sure. Okay, so Stuart Cat starts doing shows here, starts throwing the shows, and that's obviously right. your introduction to the crest. Yes. What what happened from, from that point up to present? So, um, well, so, you know, I attended shows here, attended lots of shows in San Francisco, Oakland, all the, you know, lot, day on the green. Sure. Back in the good old days. I mm. um, was doing Rocky Horror and... Do you remember the first show that you saw here at the crest? Maybe Stuart Katz put on? Well, I think all the shows that I saw at the Crest were, you know, I want to say that it was probably might have been the Flipper show. Okay. And if I'm remembering correctly, that was the show that Fastback opened for. What They were one of the openers, and I think Hot Spit Dancers were the others. 
That would have been early in 85. Okay. And I remember it well because we brought the band home with the, we brought Fastback home with us because they right. needed, they like did an announcement from the stage like, does anybody have a place where the band can crash? Yeah, I know it well. Yeah. <laughs> so I was like, I could do that. <laughs> and the cool thing was, was we had, I don't know why we had the keys, but we had keys to the apartment across the hall from us. Mm-hmm. I think it was because my friend had lived there and had moved out but we still had access to it okay so we were like we had a whole floor of a flat with two separate apartments two kitchens like a free storage space it was awesome so it was like yeah you guys can stay in our apartment where there's furniture and we'll all go you know as soon as the party wound down anyway yeah that's awesome so yeah you you hope to contribute in the belief of the kindness of strangers (laughs) exactly but yeah i want to say i saw flipper red cross public image limited and the dead kennedys here and those were the because you know it wasn't like there were tons of shows here because you had it had to be a big show to merit being in a thousand seat space but those are the shows that i seem to remember anything of noteworthy out of oh i want to say agent orange also as i'm flipping through the uh yeah Flip the through. show posters of my brain. Yeah, do it. Yeah. Bring them all out. <laughs> I should have flipped through my, my box. <laughs> yeah. What was your question? Oh, I was just <laughs> out of the, the, the four that you named, the Dead Kennedys, Red Cross, uh, Flipper, and... Public Image Limited. Anything as far as noteworthy about any of those shows? I mean, I know that there's definitely a story about the Dead Kennedys one. At that time, every it was like I was seeing everything for the first time. So, you know... Being downtown, the tank, those big cement tank structures that they had on K Street. They were supposed to be sculptures, but, Mm. (laughs) um, you know, a a lot of it's foggy because there was just so much to take in. Mm -hmm. I remember my friend Leon would run follow spot here at the shows. And so I would sit up with him at the top of the house Mm -hmm. and we would go like, you know, on breaks and whatever spelunking through the projection booth and it just looked like like time had just stood still yeah you know there was just crap everywhere and bits of film and old photographs and uh, but there's a bathroom up there so it was like oh we can hang out up here use right. the bathroom you have to go down to the lobby yeah uh, what was what was follow follow spot you yeah. know the spotlight oh okay gotcha i seem to remember things like there weren't like the lights that are the cove neon none of that worked and they had hung like fluorescent lights Mm -hmm. on chains from the ceilings in the lobby there was a gate (laughs) across the where the terrazzo ends and k street begins there was a huge like metal gate that went across there and they would open it up just wide enough to set a table and sell tickets and then a little bit of space so you could walk through, which I'm sure was like, so you wouldn't have sneak-ins, right? but totally dangerous from yeah. a fire code perspective. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I didn't view the world through those, that kind of lens at that point in time. Um, Naturally. Probably the most memorable show of the, of those shows was the, actually the public image limited show. Yeah. That was the last show I saw here before I started working here the next year. Okay. My dead Kennedy story is actually a club minimal story. Oh, okay. 
Well, tell me the public image limited one. Well, it was just that it was it was a very me- it was a great show. Mm-hmm. It was a an amazing show, and for whatever reason, I managed to like totally work my way down front, which I didn't usually do. I was usually kind of a watch the pit, stay on the periphery of the pit, not get into it until I was older. Um, my, when I would see the damned in the city, I was, I was in the pit by that point, but (laughs) I had worked up the nerve by that, by that time, but I had worked my way down front. So I was like, just underneath john lyden right the whole show Mm -hmm. and he was just on he was on danced around with a circular fluorescent light holding it by behind his head like a a halo and (laughs) you know hotel bible in the other hand and he was fanning himself and i was wearing the bottom half of a wedding dress that I had bought at a thrift store that I had torn the bottom half off and was wearing it like a shawl. shawl. And so I just, you know, pulled a hunk of it off and handed it up to him. And he danced around the stage with it and, you know, waved it around and dabbed his brow. And then at the end of the night, Chim Chim Soriano, he did a lot of the, I think he was in Tales of Terror and he did a lot of like crew for Club Minimal and he was crewing at that show. And I was like, Jam Jam, get me my lace back. <laughs> and he grabbed it and handed it to me. So I still Very have cool. it. Very cool. But why didn't I ask for the Bible also? <laughs> regrets, kids, regrets. Yeah, but at the same time, that's something that you handed to him. <laughs> exactly. And, and got back. Exactly. When I saw the misfits here, yeah. Standing out in the alleyway for like six hours before the show because I'm a little kid and want to meet Jerry only. But, uh, <laughs> I, I had made a sign because at the time it was when they had Michael Graves singing, and so everybody was giving him shit. It's like, oh, it's not Glenn. Fuck that guy. So I made a sign saying, Who's Glenn? Because I thought he had a great voice. And so halfway through the show, I held it up, and then like mid song, Michael starts cracking up. But Jerry grabbed it, you know, held it up. Everyone went ape shit. He took a bite out of it and then handed it back to me. So I still have it. So Very it's, nice. It's good to know there are other nerds Souvenirs. of that caliber. <laughs> yes. So what is the Dead Kennedys at Club Minimal story? <laughs> so Dead Kennedys play Club Minimal. I think it was the first time I saw them. Mm-hmm. And after the show, it was one of those, hey, where's the party kind of thing. And... I always confuse the two. East Bay Ray. Mm-hmm. I always want to call him Ridgewood Ray, who was a DJ at KDVS when I was a teenager. Okay. Uh, East Bay Ray was the one who was like, hey, where's the party? And, you know, it was like, well, <laughs> my house. <laughs> so we give him the address. We all head over. I lived on Arden Way at the Arden Gardens. Mm, mm. Fancy. There, I, It had a pink bathroom, and that's what wow. attracted me to... <laughs> anyway, they have one of those pillow toilet seats and everything. No, it didn't no. have a pillow. Those are not good. No, I know. I just those are not good. I had to ask. Yeah, but but a pink toilet, sans pillowy. That that pillowy stuff is that's just asking for trouble. Pillow seat and carpet on the floor. Oh, ooh. <laughs> don't put a black light on in that room. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so we <laughs> we go to the apartment. We're only we're probably just barely eighteen. Mm-hmm. 19 years old. So <laughs> we take Ray over to 7-Eleven so that he can buy us all alcohol. So we we pimpled sure. East Bay Ray. Go over, 
And we were, Tyrolia was our drink of choice at that particular time. Never heard of it. Nasty, j- sweet jug wine. Okay. So we get this. We go back to my apartment. We're drinking the wine. He's drinking something out of a flask. So he's more altered than we are, shall we say. Sure. And I had this roommate at the time, and she was, she was pretty awful. Like, I got rid of her pretty quickly. But anyway, she thought she was just so, so punk rock. Mm-hmm. And she pulls out this, like, hunting knife and opens it up and is trying to be, I don't know, seductive. And so she's taking the knife and kind of, like, running it, the blade, over her throat, which completely freaks Ray out. And so he reaches over and tries to take the knife away from her. And when he grabs it, or as he grabs at it, the business end of it, she pulls it away. And in just a perfect, you know. Samurai. Yeah. Fwing! Just fillets open his thumb. Fillets it open. Yeah. So. Old faithful. Off he runs to the bathroom, grabs a towel, and and we're like, you know, are you okay? Oh my God, are you okay? And, you know, he's telling us he's fine. He's fine. He's trying to be you know, bravado and Mm -hmm. whatnot. And he's in there for a while. And I'm just like, oh my God, are you kidding me? You just cut open a dead Kennedy. (laughs) Good first impression. Yeah, definitely. Thanks for buying us alcohol. Yeah. (laughs) So he's standing in the bathroom and I, you know, I go over and he's he's standing in the bathroom. He's crying. We made a dead Kennedy cry Mm -hmm. worse than Worse than cutting him open. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we're like... A very small list, I'm sure. Do you want us to take you back to your hotel? And he's like, yeah, I think I better go back to my hotel. But he says I, that he wants... He, oh, he's too altered to drive. Mm-hmm. And his car is a stick. So my friend drives the car, and then I drive him over in my car. We get there, and we're like, you know, I'm really, really sorry. And he's like, you know, I'll be, I'm going to be. But he kept saying that it was his his fret hand, and he had a show the next night. So it was like not a good thing. So he gets out of the car, and we're like, do you want us to walk you to your room? No, no, I'm going to be fine. We give him his, you know, keys to his car, and we send him off. My friend and I are sitting in my car, and I'm like, I I don't have a good feeling about this. (laughs) And my friend's like, yeah, I don't either. So we get out of the car, we go on to the, into the hotel. And it's one of those like business suites kind of places. So it's almost like apartments, but it's really hotels. Right. Like an extended stay or something. Exactly. And we find him crying in the laundry room. Oh, (laughs) So we, you know, we walk him. We're like, come on, let's. We'll walk you to your room. We unlock the door. Yeah. We make sure that he's safe in his room. Yeah. Lock him in. Give him his keys and get you know. Gave him our number. So you know, call us tomorrow. Blah blah blah. We didn't think we would hear from him again. But the next afternoon, he called and said it's not as bad <laughs> as it looked last night. Uh, you know, I'm gonna be able to play. It's all good. Relief. Yes. But then, but then, but then I realized I have a towel covered in East Bay Ray's blood. <laughs> well, we aren't just going to wash that. I could actually, with that DNA, recreate 
I could grow my own East Bay Ray if I wanted to, which I don't. I have no intentions of doing that. Never say never. (laughs) We had this, um, this baby doll that we had found in a field and we had given her a mohawk and put a safety pin through her face and painted her up like Susie Sue. And Mm -hmm. I took that towel and I cut it into shreds and I used that to stuff the doll. And so. (laughs) Do you still have the doll? Oh, hell yeah. I still have that doll. You must have like this, this instead of like framed photos of your kids, you just have Johnny Rotten Sweat, Ace Ray Ray's blood. (laughs) DNA of the punk and famous. There you go. I have a Jello Biafra sweat towel also, but I don't have any colorful stories that go along with it. (laughs) Okay, so you started going to shows, you saw some crazy shows, and then you said you started working here. Is that when it was just doing movies and stuff? So I started hanging out in the Sacramento poetry scene and was doing that a lot like nebulous stucco thing watching you know going to a lot of readings at the chart room in broadrick uh arthur butler bl kennedy gene avery etc so i was kind of doing that more still seeing shows but that kind of became part of what i was doing also and i was hanging out at the world's longest poetry reading which took place it was a like we were going for the guinness record mm-hmm. 24 hours a day for a full week wow like literally 247 like you cannot stop yeah. reading poetry yeah so that took place at the java city at 18th and capitol pretty much put that java city on the map yeah that huge camphor tree we had a podium kind of set up, and the camphor tree's gone now too, yeah. but um, had like a podium set up there, and people were just, you know, reading around the clock. I never read, I just attended, but they needed people to be there to kind of like give people the motivation to keep reading at like three, four, five o'clock in the morning. I had these giant floor pillows, so I would like throw those in my car and drive down and lay out pillows and just like lay on the ground and watch poetry for hours and hours and hours that's amazing and it's so and i did as much time as i could at that at that reading yeah did they did they get there 24 7 for a week yeah and actually there was a 10th anniversary of the world's longest poetry reading done 10 years later they did it again yeah okay so do they they still hold the record has anybody Uh, you know i don't know okay i'll have to look into it (laughs) but anyway so i'm hanging out at this uh reading and i um bump into uh, matthias bombal and he is at that time involved in getting the crest ready to reopen okay and he says, you know, roughly when is this? This is October of 1986. Okay. You know, you would be perfect to come and work at the Crest Theater. You must apply. You simply must. And I was at the time I was working, working at Arden Fair Cinemas and I was going to school and I wasn't really looking for more employment, but he just wouldn't let up on it. Like he started calling me the day that they were doing interviews and called me every half an hour all day until I took his call. Like I had been out running errands and my roommates, when I got home, my roommates were just like, oh my God, you have to call this guy. He is crazy for you coming and working at the Crest. (laughs) 
I'm like, I don't, you know, I don't want another job. My one of my roommates, Mike, takes me aside and says, he tells me he they want to make you a manager. And so I'm like, well, if it's more money, I'll go check that out. Sure. So I threw on my job interview sweater and trundled down to the crest, interviewed, got the job. Mm-hmm. Found out that being a manager was I was going to be the only person running the concession stand. So by default, I was my own manager. I was also one of the only people who had any front of house experience in a theater. So I ended up escalating (laughs) quickly. But that's how I, I came to be employed here at the Fabulous Crest Theater on a... And that's how you ended up in this, this office? Yeah. Just, just one position to, an, to another? Yeah, to I next. was a, a candy girl from 86. I was probably starting to manage in early 87, in okay. 88. Uh, well, end of 87, I believe it was, I was offered some stock to, to buy some stock in the company, mm-hmm. bought stock in the company was offered the opportunity to buy more stock, bought more stock, and now I own 40% of the business. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah. At least it's in good hands, right? There you go. That's how I see it. <laughs> so you, you become the proprietor of the Crest Theater, and at that point, is that when live shows were happening, or was it still just movies, or was it kind of hybriding? Did you kind of have a say in what was going on? Uh, well, when the theater first opened up in 86, the plan was to do live shows here. Mm-hmm. Uh, Linda McDonough, who ran the Palms Playhouse in Davis, was involved in the reopening of the theater and wanted wanted the space to be able to bring in the bigger shows that she couldn't fit at the Palms. Kind of like the Stuart Katz, Club Minimal, Crest model, mm-hmm. only she was doing stuff like country, bluegrass, world, folk, funk kind of stuff. So the idea was <clears throat> reopen the theater and until we're ready to, like, until we have the stage built, until the, you know, the infrastructure is in to do live shows, we'll run films. Mm-hmm. And that was actually Matias's idea. And so we opened it up and we were running films like three or four days a week, you know, classics, 35 millimeter. And the response was fair, not great, but it was, it got us going and, and got us established. Mm-hmm. First show was, first live show was... In January of 87, the Shirelles. Okay. Um, and then, you know, we did kind of a hybrid of films and live shows. Basically, we'd look at a, a month and, okay, so we've got a live show here on Wednesday and another on Saturday, so we'll run film Thursday, Friday. Or, you know, we have no live shows, we'll run film Wednesday through Saturday. And then we would... We'd all sit around and brainstorm, like remembering films that we enjoyed. The very first film that I that I really advocated for was Bell, Book, and Candle, and it killed. Yeah, yeah, it was awesome. <laughs> right off the bat. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, so that's what we were doing. Doing the live shows. It was mostly the Palms Playhouse kind of stuff, and then Linda sold her interest in the crest and moved away and so and and we were producing live shows ourselves we did the last live show for a time anyway that the crest produced was um cab calloway Mm -hmm. and it almost sunk our battleship really yeah wow that's sad 
December. It was foolish. It was a Sunday, the Sunday before Christmas. Yeah. Um, we it was just kind of rookie move. Lost a boat ton of money. Yeah. You know, because there was hotel rooms and flights, right. and you know, you don't just like Cab Calloway doesn't say, "Hey, is there a place where I can spend the night tonight?" <laughs> <laughs> it's like, yeah. no, he's going to be staying at the Hyatt. Right. It's like, hey, this is where I'll be staying tonight. <laughs> I'll send you the bill. So we lost a bunch of money. And at that time, our, and I was just, I was still pretty much a candy girl at the time. You know, I would do, a lot of times I would do a hybrid shift where I was running the theater, but I was also running the concession stand. Mm -hmm. And I had a, a helper, you know, for busy shows. But uh, our money guy sat us down and basically told us that we weren't getting it so much as another fucking nickel right out of him mm -hmm. and we were either gonna sink or swim sure. on our own mm -hmm. <laughs> and of course i was like well well there there goes this little fantasy yeah yeah <laughs> but we bootstrapped and we you know threw things off the boat and we started making better decisions and well we're sitting here today. Now, when you came in, is this, did Andy and, and Gary and, and Bill, I mean, is, is this kind of a, a core group that you've known all this time or did people kind of come along the way? No, they're, they've all been here since the beginning. Okay. Andy and Bill knew each other from going to UC Davis together. Andy ran his own sound engineering firm and was doing sound at the Palms Playhouse. Okay. And so he and and then he his partner was Gary Schroeder who did the lighting design part of the their business. Mm -hmm. And they originally came to the Crest for installing the sound and the lights. And in fact to this day the sound and lights that are here in house he owns all of that gear. He owns the sound and lights company that has the sound lights here inside the crest and how did how did you meet bill well we met here oh just here at the crest yeah how, just you were working here and he came to a show or, or what no he knew i've never heard that story so oh so he well he had gone to college with andy and so he was working with andy doing sound support okay. so they were doing all of the like the freeborn shows and the shows at the coffee house Back in the day, the the coffee house at UC Davis would so an act would perform at they would perform in New York Saturday Night Live, mm -hmm. and then they would fly to the West Coast, and they would start their tour in the West. So the coffee house was getting whoever played Saturday Night Live on Saturday, they would get them before the tour began at the coffee house in Davis. Oh, okay, that's cool. So. The Three O'Clock, Elvis Costello, B-52s. Um, Clash. The, no, I don't think I'm the just... Clash, but um, <laughs> Talking Heads all did SNL. One after another. Came and did, and Andy and Bill did the sound support for all of those shows. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Great. <laughs> Andy to this day swears that they did R.E.M. at the at the coffee house, but it's pure myth. <laughs> pure myth. Yes. <laughs> So I met Bill, Andy, Gary when I came to work here. We were all working together, you know, scrubbing. And, and I, of course, at the time, I joke, like, I thought everybody's name was, like, Larry. Yeah. Because uh, I was meeting all these different people. And we were all exhausted because we were working around the clock trying to, trying to get the theater right. reopened. But anyway, that's how I met Bill 
but we didn't actually start dating for like four more years after that. Okay. So there was like flirtation right. going on. It's a long period of wooing. You know, there was, yes, exactly. We didn't want to rush into anything. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you got all your life. Well, I think we were in kind of different places when I came to work here. I was 21. He was 28. Mm -hmm. He had, you know, he'd finished college and law school and was this responsible person. And I was this stinky punk rocker with no eyebrows who was very brash and pushy. And so I think we were just different places and then, you know. Opposites attract. Yeah. That's awesome. like that. So you started doing shows here and everything else. Has it been, I, I guess, not necessarily an upward swing, but I mean, has it just been kind of consistent since 86 as far as you continuing to do movie shows and everything else? I would say so. You know, we were doing our own shows and then we realized that that was, was not working mm -hmm. for us, that it was, just wasn't a stable enough income stream to support the whole operation. Right. And so we branched out and started renting out the theater to people who wanted to produce shows here. Okay. So um, I think it started with like a, we had a, like a children's group approach us about doing something in the morning for school children, like a field trip sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And we were kind of thinking, well, you know, that actually could work very nicely. Right. So we did that and started getting more of that kind of stuff and then started getting approached about doing business events, receptions, um, big film openings. We did the opening of La Bamba with Donna was here in person oh, as really? well as, as uh, Frankie Valen's mom. Wow. That was our first big, well, not our first big show, but that was in my memory a big show like there was a big push to because yeah. we were refurbishing as we went so it was there was a big push to let's let's do this portion of the marquee let's do these seats let's mm -hmm. paint this area and so that it was you know we kept <laughs> we kept singing before la bamba we gotta do this before la bamba we gotta do that <laughs> <laughs> so i still remember you know that 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 was a a big deal yeah. and lots of eyes on us and we yeah. really needed to make sure that we got it right right what was the i mean you said it wasn't the first big one do you remember was cab Calloway well i first? mean you know we had done the opening night of the theater with donald o'connor here in person okay. mm -hmm. we had done cab calloway we had had by that time i think we'd had taj mahal and you know some other fairly big names but that was you know it was being done by the hispanic chamber of commerce it was a big hollywood release mm -hmm. it had there was a lot of publicity behind it so yeah a lot of eyes on you yeah perfectly perfect way to say it well and that's the, that's kind of how the crest has always worked is that there'll be some project or some you know, like a marquee restoration or an interior renovation or something like that that will put the pressure on to have us, you know, let's get let's get some of these other projects done while we're at it. Right. When you say that the marquee had collapsed out front and that they had torn the theater back to the brick walls, uh -huh. as far as what K Street looks like now, how far out roughly did the theater used to go and or how far out did the marquee used to go? So if you look at the, so the, the entry to the Hippodrome went all the way out to K Street. Okay. 
Was the little box office always there? No. No. Okay. No. So if you look at, if you look at the crest from K Street, you'll see how set back the brick building is. Right. That that actually houses the theater. The entryway to the Empress in the Hippodrome was actually only half as wide as the entrance to the crest is. Okay. So it was this very narrow entryway with a very, very small lobby, mm-hmm. virtually no, like no concessions. There was a, I think a two seat ladies room up on the, in the, in the balcony, um, a pretty tiny bathroom for the men. It had a full, full balcony. So not only was the entryway more narrow, but the theater itself, where the floor seating was, was lower. It's about the level that the lower lobby is. And then there was actually an upper balcony above that? Yeah. Oh, wow. So that entry point into the brick building is still just about in the same spot. Okay. But it's much wider, and we now have a much bigger lobby. The floor is elevated. There's basement space below the seating in the lower section. There's not a balcony anymore. Above where the ceiling is now, is are there... Is the, is that just attic space, or is that where there is that where the balcony was? Yeah, and so when you're um, up in the rafters, mm-hmm. the actual roof line of the crest goes up another. I think it's thirty feet. Oh wow! Above that false ceiling that you see inside the crest, the current crest theater chamber. Okay. And that whole ceiling, all the cove, you know, the gilding, the architectural. Acoustical material, all of that is suspended on a series of basically like airline cable from the ceiling, from the actual roof line. Wow. And they're set like every, I think it's like six feet. It's been a long time since I've been up there. And then there's a series of catwalks that go above that ceiling so that we can get at changing light bulbs and things like that. Right. Or when you get so happy about somebody letting a balloon loose in there. No, that those they don't get through. No, I just, <laughs> but yeah, I've, I've seen it happen. I remember the first time I saw it, I was terrified. It was one of those big no-nos. <laughs> it's worse to have a bat in the theater. I would imagine. Yeah, we yeah. just we just actually had that happen just recently. recently. Just recently. First time. Oh no. Okay. Just recently. Yeah, uh, it doesn't happen very often. Happily, it's been it's been a few years. But you know, I I would say probably over my time here, we've had. Probably somewhere between seven and to nine bats in the theater. Not bad. Yeah. yeah. I mean, just over the course of time, you know, <laughs> yeah. it's not bad at all. So now we just got it over with, so we're not due again for at least another three years. That's great. You know, there you go. There's there's the assurance that mm-hmm. you can give, give the customers. <laughs> um, another thing I was going to ask you is, when did the the, the two downstairs theaters, mm-hmm. when were those put in or were they always there? No, they weren't always there. In 1993, there was a fire in the retail space that fronted the theater building. So we talked about how the theater building is actually offset from K Street. Mm -hmm. In that space, there were like little retail, there was a little retail center. It was like, at the time, it was a patio cafe, a beauty store, a clothing shop, and a tuxedo den. So is this where outside of the... So kind of like where the Courtyard Crest Cafe, Asuka Sushi, and Mother are. Okay, so that, okay. Yeah. So the Patio Cafe had operated many years by the same family. They did a terrific job. And then the, you know, old man wanted to retire. Mm -hmm. 
So they sold the business. The person who bought the business sub tried to make go of it, couldn't, tried to sublet it or did sublet it to another outfit. They were not making it. And they, I guess, decided that they would be better off trying to collect insurance money. They jacked up their prices the weekend of the Jazz Jubilee and just made as much money as they possibly could over that weekend. And then Monday night about, I think we got the phone call about 9, 9.30, so probably about 8, 15, 8.30, mm-hmm. they set it on fire. Damn. And that fire burned through the entire retail space. There were multiple attics. It was old construction and... It just completely, completely gutted those four businesses. Mm-hmm. Did um, some damage to the Crest building. Our marquee was damaged. We had some burn through through one of the common walls and a whole lot of smoke. Mm-hmm. A whole lot of smoke. So, you know, we had to cancel a bunch of shows, close down for, I think we were closed for a couple weeks We were really actually trying to reopen in like three days. And it was so awesome. The people in the community who came out and would like spend hours of their time, like vacuuming seats and cleaning and just trying to get the smoke smell out of everything. And the fire department came to us and said, you're not going to reopen on Wednesday. And we were like, oh no, we're going to reopen on Wednesday. (laughs) And they said, you're not <laughs> going to reopen on Wednesday. Right. We're like, oh, no, no, that's right. We're not going to reopen. <laughs> but I remember, you know, the night of the fire, we come racing down here. And we come around the corner. We had just finished restoring the marquee. We come around the corner and there's just flames everywhere. Mm-hmm. There's fire trucks and water and hoses. And I come around. <laughs> around Woolworths at the time. And I look up just in time to watch a fireman start whacking at the reader board with an ax. (laughs) I'm just like, oh, I don't, I think I feel woozy. (laughs) (laughs) And of course it was because there was burn through and, you know, I I fault them not (laughs) one iota. They did an amazing job. And they, I think once they realized that the businesses were done for were done for they just set their sights on protecting the crest great so um yeah th- what's funny is a lot of the fire academies graduate here at the crest and they run the footage of the night of the crest fire oh, at really? every graduation <laughs> and it's like oh i can still smell the smoke <laughs> like do we really have to watch yeah. this again you get woozy every time <laughs> not anymore but i'll tell you what for probably three years mm-hmm. every time the phone rang after 8 p.m my heart Oof. just jumped ptsd huh yeah every every time so the fire completely demolishes so fire demolishes those businesses and the 
property owners are looking at what rebuilding and what can we put there and yada yada. And so we suggested, why don't you dig down below ground and we'll put two little theaters below the new construction. And so that's what we ended up doing was the plan originally was just to do a single single story of retail space, just replace what had been there. But we we convinced them to do to dig down underneath those new structures. We'd put the two movie theaters down there, uh, attach them to the crest, and then they'd have the retail space above. And then they decided to add one more floor of office above that. And okay. so they ended up with three stories of um, of building, right. replacing that single story frontage shops. So when did the, the- Downstairs theaters, when did they officially open? They opened in November of 1997. Oh, okay. Was there any kind of grand showing? No, there was a, you know, we did a big push thinking that the theaters were going to be ready, Mm -hmm. and they weren't. And so we ended up doing a party. We ended up calling it a, like a preview or or something like that. Unveiling. Yeah. So yeah, then it, it ended up kind of starting out with not a whole lot of a bang. The retail spaces above us took another two years to be completed. So that really, that hurt us. Yeah. Kind of put a damper on it. Yeah. Now I've heard stories that the downstairs women's restroom is haunted. Is there any truth to that? Or is that just something that maybe somebody told me when I first started working here to freak me out? So we had done this big scrub up of the historic theater, right? We, after the fire, um, we were, there was money from the insurance. Mm -hmm. There was some private money. And then the city of Sacramento granted money to the project to 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 do some work inside the historic space. That that was the time where we took out all of the seats and had them all refurbished. We scrubbed all while those seats were gone, we scrubbed all the gunk from out from underneath them. We put a big scaffolding inside the theater chamber. We cleaned the gold ceilings. We I mean, we did a ton of work. But I had people say to me that they felt like we had scrubbed the ghosts away, Mm -hmm. like we had, you know, somehow cleaned the space spiritually or something like that. And, you know, I don't know. (laughs) That's probably all just pickle smoke. But I could see how when a theater is kind of like old and worn, there's something kind of lived in about it. Anyway. In the space where the theaters are going to be built, but we're st- it's just all dug out. And we were like 14 inches above the water table. So when you like walked on the ground, it felt like you were walking on a waterbed. Oh, okay. And I felt like I could feel a presence on the underbelly of the crest, if that makes any sense. We, we were actually kind of the foundation of the crest was exposed at that time. And it just felt alive. I don't know how else to put it. So I was like, well, maybe this is where the ghosts went. (laughs) So we build the new theaters. And then after that, I have had a number of patrons. I've had people write me like I attended a movie at the Crest last night. And I just have to ask you, are those theaters haunted? (laughs) Yeah. 
and not just the ladies room but I've, I've gotten reports from both the the two theaters the ladies room the lobby we had a janitor here who had a door he would shut it and then he kept finding it opened like hitched open with a doorstop even and he'd go and he'd shut it and then he'd find it open again like in the same evening when he was the only one here but yeah i've had a number of patrons write like on the suggestion slips the downstairs theaters are haunted yeah. <laughs> like is that a suggestion or no is this no is that is that to say that they've seen something or just that they've felt something i have always heard about those the downstairs spaces that they've felt something sure the main theater and the downstairs women's restroom. And I, it, you know, it could be just the fact that it's a long corridor of, of unknown doors. Little, kind of a little sh uh, shining. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> a little bit, you know, like what's behind door number six, uh -huh. you know? Yeah, I can, I still remember the first night just cleaning the theater. I think it was after Jonas Brothers or something, but just kind of cleaning the, the theater and then just kind of looking over my shoulder and looking up to the, the upward balcony seating and there being nothing there, but for a split second out of the corner of my eye, there was something there and, and yeah. feeling like there's somebody just staring at you you know so I'm like oh I'm getting messed with and then I look and there's nothing there yeah well I have I have seen somebody up at the top of the house more than once mm. and I've actually I had a, a friend who was he was working here and he was talking about the downstairs theaters being haunted and he asked me what do you see and I said no you tell me what you see and he described a tall, thin man, horn rimmed glasses, wearing light colored clothing, with kind of a 50s flat top kind of hairdo, mm -hmm. light colored clothing, either light gray, button up shirt, short sleeve up by the projection booth. And that's exactly what I see. And wow. I see I've seen him at least five times. Wow. Yeah. Somebody was telling me that that during the the fire the during the fire that it was actually two firefighters got no or... well there was a fire back in the Hippodrome era and there were I think two firefighters that were killed in that in the downstairs theater area or just in... no well I guess not because it wasn't getting gutted yet so. yeah to the west of the crest well to the west of the entrance to the Hippodrome was Carmel Corn candy shop okay. And there was a fire in that shop and the floor burned through. And I think I'm remembering this correctly. Two firemen fell through the burn through and were killed. And so, yes, they were in a basement, but they were not in those basement theaters. Okay. See, there's there's where the stories are getting moved around yeah. as far as locale goes. Right. That's what's funny is when I told Gary about my feeling that, you know, because I think he kind of walked in and he saw me look over my shoulder. He's like, oh, you feel somebody? Yeah. You know, and, and I was like, yeah. And then he told me about. The projectionist that I, I, I guess you had here at a time. Uh-huh. Does is that, is that ring a bell as far as why there's still a Whitney Houston shirt? <laughs> well, that's, I don't think that, well, there's some, some talk that maybe we're have, we, we have visits from him occasionally. I don't, I don't know about that. But yeah, we had a projectionist here who was just the most brilliant projectionist you would, I mean, just mechanically brilliant in all in all things he could tear down and put a projector back together on the fly like a rifle just yeah exactly but he was an unusual person and he went on <laughs> he went on tour with depeche mode mm -hmm. 
and toured with them for quite a few years and came back when Depeche Mode was off tour, came back and was running shifts at the theater <laughs> and had uh, one night declared it Depeche Mode night at the Crest. And we were running the, I think it was, it was being produced by the, the Festival of Animation guys, but I want to say it was like a Warner Brothers cartoon festival, like Bugs Bunny film festival. Okay. And the promoters wanted to play their own music as walk-in. And, you know, that's what they should have been allowed to do. Sure. But he had declared it Depeche Mode night. going to say Bugs Bunny and Depeche And Mode. locked himself into the projection booth. And we have, there's a slip latch on the exterior doors of the room so that they're basically privacy locks so that if the projectionist needs to use the bathroom... He can lock the doors and have privacy and not worry about somebody with a key coming in and, you know, surprising him. So he had <laughs> he had locked those. Mm -hmm. So we couldn't get something. in. We were actually like, I'm on the phone with Andy. Like, you've got to help me. I don't know what to do. He's like completely off his rocker. And Andy had me, we like wrote him. Oh, I know. We wrote him a note, something like, you know. Andy's on line one. You need to talk to him. <laughs> and we slipped it under the door like a hostage situation. Right, yeah. And Andy was able to talk him off the off the Depeche Mode ledge. Yeah. But anyway, he worked here for many, many years. And he came and went whenever he would go on tour. He toured with Whitney Houston. Or he did some, he may have just done a series of shows with her. But he had gotten this this t-shirt and hung it on a hanger up in the corner of the projection booth. And while we were working on the two new theaters, we had some differences of opinion and he left. He stormed out angry and he took his own life some, some just a few weeks later. So anyway, we have never, ever moved the Whitney Houston t-shirt just in case. That's what I was told. But we're not superstitious here at the Crest at all. No, not one bit. <laughs> but when, but he would, he would refer to himself as Skippy when he was being evil. Uh -huh. He would say, we have Skippy in the house tonight. <laughs> I'm just like, oh God, Skippy's here. So when we have strange little ghosts in the machine or technical challenges or something is not where it's supposed to be, it's a Skippy, a Skippy, Skippy moment. Skippy moment. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, it was, we were all very, very devastated when he took his life. And it, that was certainly not, not what we wanted to have go down. But he was, he was having like, big skippy moment <laughs> over some of the, the changes that we were making. And maybe it was just that it was too much change for him to, to take in. But right. well, moving on from that, um, since it's very, very low on the, the sadness wavelength. Sure. Uh, I was just going to, how long have you been doing like the, you know, the, the author series, the, the film festivals? Cause when I first got introduced to the crest, I mean, again, it was older movies or, or just random shows like, you know, Misfits or Bruce Campbell doing Evil Dead for TFO, stuff like that. Up until then, Crest was very foreign to me. Kind of out of nowhere, I just, I started noticing kind of this big almost, I mean, it, it is kind of a community if you ask me, because it is, it is a, a very large segment of Sacramento. I mean, how did, did they kind of approach you or did you seek them out? Because I think it's a really great thing. The Crest has over time become kind of a, the mini community center as 
you know, it's a, it's a professional space. Mm -hmm. So it's more than say going into a community room at a high school or something like that, but it's not the community center theater, which is a much bigger space and fully unionized. So it's an expensive house to, to go in and produce a show. Mm -hmm. And so the crest is accessible to a lot of different producers in the community and in the region and in the United States. So you might have a company like Live Nation, who used to be Bill Graham Presents, in the crest one night, and the next night you might have the Sikh Temple's children's performance, their annual spring festival. You might have a week-long film festival locally produced, or you might have a film festival that's touring the United States, like the Festival of Animation. Mm -hmm. And so what makes the crest what the crest is, is all of those different players producing events inside the space. It helps that I am open to... I mean, you know, I, I don't approach shows with like, oh, that's not, what you know, here. that's not what we do here. So that's why we, you know, sometimes we have amateur children's shows or something you know, of that nature. Right. Occasionally we'll have business seminars or, or things that you wouldn't normally think about as being in a, in a theater space. Sure. And because the, we run the crest as a fairly open place um, it means that people like the Gay and Lesbian Film Festival were comfortable coming to us with the idea of making this the festival's home. Right. So we've been doing the Gay and Lesbian Film Festival for 22 years. The Jewish Film Festival just celebrated its 17th year, and that's actually an in-house production. Oh, okay. The Trash Film Orgy, I think, is going to be 12 this year, maybe 13, I don't know. But that was a project that started and it continues to be a co-presentation of the Crest and Trash Film Orgy Productions. Okay. They do a, a lot more of the creative. Now, you know, I used to go to the script meetings and we'd all sit around and riff and come up with ideas. I don't do that as much as I used to, but I still perform in the shows whenever they need Evil Sid to come in. Evil and Sid do her thing which was another reason it was terrifying being interviewed because all i had to go off of i was like i remember asking Lori, i'm like who am i interviewing with she's like you know that evil sid the crest manager i'm like yeah she's like her i'm like okay get a good night's sleep <laughs> yeah um with jason who was a manager here forever yeah. when we first met now, he'll always correct me on this, but I think the very first time we met, he interviewed me for an, a, like a student newspaper or something like that. And I did the entire interview <laughs> as Evil Sid, the whole thing right. from like beginning to end. Great. Yeah. Great case. Yeah. And then he came in and, you know, interviewed with me. And <laughs> right. I had, I just, I actually just hired for a, the janitorial position and- Christy from TFO had put it out on her Facebook page. And so I had people that I knew pretty much only in the capacity of being evil Sid. Right. And here I am interviewing them <laughs> and I don't think about it. You yeah, know, yeah. I don't, I'm not, I'm not afraid of me, <laughs> <laughs> <Good thing. laughs> but I, I guess it can be a little 
surprising. And I think it's a as great I character. <laughs> well, I think as I get older too, and the audience is that comes in is getting younger, you know, or art the age spread is more, it's even more shocking. Yeah. Cause you know, now it's like this middle-aged woman who is just like ripping off F bombs and calling us names and making us clean up after ourselves. Mm -hmm. I was a lifeguard most of my teenage years and so those skills are totally transferable to evil sid like you know you go back to the front door and you walk mm -hmm. <laughs> motherly instincts almost adult swim <laughs> yeah i i will say that watching evil sid as a spectator was uh -huh. Impressive, but watching <laughs> Evil Sid is going, that's my boss. You know? <laughs> it's a much more enjoyable It's funny. Experience. It's, it can be, that character can be a little exhausting. Really? Yeah. Oh, I just thought yeah. it was something that you just kind of ran into. You know, it does, it kind of rolls off the tongue, but when it, there does come a point where it, it starts to repeat itself. You know, there's only so many rotten things that you can say to people. I, and then people will approach me with this look like, you know, are you going to be mean to me? <laughs> Come on, be mean to me. I want to be able to tell people that you were mean to me. So you're like the, the and Don so, Rickles. It's yeah. Like, insult me. <laughs> exactly. And it's like, okay, <laughs> you're fat and ugly. <laughs> well, I mean, at least they're asking you And no that. one will ever love you. <laughs> I mean, at least people are asking you to do that. <laughs> but it was, you know, speaking of the lecture series, so mm -hmm. that audience is kind of highbrow, shall we say, yes. <laughs> and a little high maintenance. And that, so the, the evil Sid character and the California lectures all kind of came together in this perfect cathartic sort of, this is really good for my blood pressure sort of way. Okay. Because, you know... With that show, yeah. I had to smile and be nice and pleasure to be of service. So it's almost going from Glenda to the Wicked <laughs> Yeah, I could go through a season of that, and then I could just cut loose on people. Really good. <laughs> Very cool. So so you were involved in the, the formation of TFO? So Keith Well Jensen, a local mm -hmm. comedian, he had been pestering me forever to do like a grindhouse sort of midnight movie thing. And I kept, you know, shooing him away. And he... Like a fly. He like a fly. <laughs> he toured with Spike and Mike. He would then show up at the crest in the capacity of MC for Spike and Mike. So it was like kind of interesting. Like I met him. He was just kind of this annoying teenager who would show up and, you know... Oh come on, let me let me put on a show. Why don't you do why don't you do this? Why don't you do that? Why don't you do this? Come on, come on, come on, come on. And then suddenly he was my client rep for one of my shows. And so we, you know, we got to know each other on in a different capacity. And so then he started up the Tuesday night grindhouse um at the Colonial. Okay. And even though it was Tuesday night and it was in the middle of the ghetto, he was getting audiences. And then that kind of unraveled over as, as projects sometimes do. But I mean, he had it going for quite some time, but it was like a very small group of people trying to do it 
all. So he came to me with a proposal to do something like the Tuesday Night Grindhouse here at the Crest. And he had engaged Christy Savage and Darren Wood from Screaming Catfish, which, you know, they did design, they're artists, brilliant artists. And um, Darren Wood is just a fantastic scriptwriter. So he had met them and they were kind of fantasizing about the idea of doing this thing. And so I said, I'll give you six weeks. I'll do a six week show. And if it works, it works. And if it doesn't, it doesn't. No harm, no foul. I'm willing to do this for six weeks. So he calls me on the phone and he says, how do you feel about the name Trash Film Orgy? (laughs) And I'm like, hmm, I need to let that sink in for a moment. And I'm like picturing it on the marquee. And I'm like, you know, I I think I'm okay with that. Okay, good. And then we start talking about, oh, then they they came up with the idea of doing Trash Till Dawn. Mm -hmm. So, you know, starting at midnight and going all night long. And by then I'm kind of like getting into, uh, and I start like coming up with ideas like, oh, we could, we could hand out free boxes of cereal and we could, you know, encourage people to come in their pajamas and we could have a pillow fight (laughs) with, you know, scantily clad girls. And he's, Keith was like, you know, as soon as you start coming up with ideas for the shows, we know we've got you. Right. So then, but that's about my involvement. And then I'm, they're suggesting films. I'm booking the films. I'm paying for the films and I'm, I'm paying for the infrastructure. And they're getting the, the players together to do the stage show and all of that. Okay. We do the first show and Keith will tell this story differently than I do, but. I keep trying to call him, so I'm nudging. <laughs> we do the first show and they've got this, uh, this guy by the name of Francois Fly who is hosting the show. And Francois is on the stage and is talking about the show and it's the opening night and I'm up in the sound booth running the sound and lights because we're trying to do it just like budget, budget, budget. So I'm up doing the sound and lights and Francois is trying to set the tone of we're going to have a lot of fun. We're going to be able to do this, but we're not going to be able to keep doing it if you fuck shit up. So he's giving them basically the don't fuck shit up speech. And he says, besides which, I hear the manager of this place is a real bitch. Now, Keith, Francois's manager, will tell you that he asked my permission. (laughs) But I will tell you that the first I heard of it was up from that sound booth. (laughs) But I was like, cool with it. I was like, yeah, that's fine. You know, good cop, bad cop, right? So after the show, we start talking. And by the next week, Evil Sid is unfolding. You know, she's stomping around in the lobby and she's yelling at patrons and making them clean up their own popcorn messes and berating them if they don't bring exact change to the box office. I had one group of kids who was trying to leave before the conclusion of the feature. And I are you leaving <laughs> before the conclusion of the feature? And they were like, well, we've we've seen this before. And I was like, this is on the big screen at the Crest Theater. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. <laughs> and there was a group of four who actually turned around and went back inside right. to watch the conclusion of the feature. That's Very evil cool. said. That's good. There's a method to the madness. <laughs> so we start chatting And we start coming up with this concept for Evil Sid 
to take over okay. the trash film orgy because evil Sid really doesn't want to do the trash film orgy does not want to have the trash film orgy in her theater mm -hmm. but evil Sid loves money <laughs> right. more than she doesn't want trash film orgy to be in her theater evil Sid loves the film as an art form evil Sid loves Jim Jarmusch <laughs> Evil, there's like running jokes like Evil Sid requires that one trash film orgy every season has to be a musical. That was, we did that for a while, but that was hard to sustain. Right. So the idea is, is that I'm going to take over the show. And we just happen to have a print of this Korean, very serious drama called Sopyeonji mm -hmm. up in the booth. Which it's been, it's, we've had this print for years and once in a while we use it as a junk print, you know, like we need to test something and mm -hmm. the idea is we're going to thread that up. And so Francois Fly takes the stage, yada, yada, does his thing and cue Evil Sid music. And all of a sudden I got a theme song, right? So boom, cue Evil Sid music. I stomp in and I just berate the audience. Yeah. I tell them that I'm going to show them socially redeeming. I'm going to show them something foreign. I'm going to show them something subtitled. <laughs> and then as I start to do my maniacal laugh, the projectionist hits the sheet with this Korean film. Right. <laughs> so people are like, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm laughing and I can still picture it to this day, like the projector light hitting me. And I probably am casting this big wicked shadow. And Francois comes up behind me and slits my throat. Oh. And I am now just covered in stage blood and yeah. laughing maniacally. And they, you know, I fall to the floor and I die. And... The audience, you know, Francois Fly has saved the day and blah, blah, blah. And Trash Film Orgy is saved. And the show starts. And I get off stage and I go out the stage door to the alley. And I am just like a wild animal. Yeah. I am like, oh, my God. I am the highest I have ever, ever been on endorphins. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, I have I have to have more of that. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever that was, I'll take a whole bunch of it to go. You know, a little while later, Keith approaches me. He's starting a comedy troupe. And would I like to come out and play? Okay. And, you know, I've got a, like a two and a half year old and but I really want to do it. And Bill had as long as we've been together, he's always saying, you know, you should go you should go try out for a play. Or, and so he was very supportive. And I went and I started hanging out with them. And before I knew it, I was a member of a comedy troupe. Is that the one called? I, I Can't Believe It's Not Comedy. Okay. And when we performed together for about eight years really pretty regularly and then we did a couple of comedy festivals here locally and then you know life has a way everybody started kind of going in their own direction and so that happened so how do you feel about the whole cars on k street and the uh the arena coming do you see good things for the crest and the, the future of all that development well um thus far i'm not sure that cars on k have made that big of a difference other than for visibility mm -hmm. but it's it's almost like people are so unused to driving on k. i don't even drive on k street i, I, I still it. take my little 
goat path, which is sometimes a longer route. Me too. But and once in a while it dawns on me like, oh, I can drive down K Street. And I do because it's fun and I can. But I'm not sure that we're seeing all of the, the benefits that we'll see once the arena is open. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm I'm glad for the arena. I think that uh, it'll be good. Uh, it'll be good for business. I'm hopeful that it it has positive spin-off for those of us who have been down here a long, long time. I hope that it doesn't end up being just completely homogenized and we'll we'll just see, you know, I've been doing this too long to not be more than cautiously optimistic. Sure. <laughs> two uh two quick things I'll I'll ask you and then I'll let you get on with your work day. One, I was gonna ask if you could enlighten us to the green footprints on the wall down in the basement. Yeah, yeah. That uh to some well to many don't even know, but to, to many others it's it's folklore and to a few it's fact. <laughs> but so how did there how did there end up green footprints on the wall in the basement? Or the dressing room area. Yeah. So back in the, the, before we did the renovation of the theater, when we would do live shows, we had a kind of a small space at the stage level, stage left, that we used as a dressing room. Mm -hmm. And it was really just kind of this awkward space that had been left when the building was renovated. It was not much more than a storage room, but a fairly big storage room. Mm -hmm. So we made that dressing room A. And on the other side of the stage, at stage right, there was an entrance down into the basement of the theater. And that was a much smaller space with a false floor that um, covered over stairs leading down into the basement. That was dressing room B. (laughs) So we would put the headliner in A and the opener in B. Mm -hmm. In 1990, Nirvana and Dinosaur Jr. were touring together and they were co-headliners. And one night Nirvana would headline and the next night Dinosaur Jr. would headline. And on the night that they came to the crest, they happened, Dinosaur Jr. happened to be the headliner and Nirvana the opener. And so Nirvana got relegated to dressing room B. So Nirvana's in dressing room B. And as one would expect any red-blooded young people to do, they got curious and they went exploring and they figured out that they could pull up the floor of their magnificent dressing room and get down into the basement where there was just crap, seat parts, carpeting, posters, I mean, tables, broken things, Mm -hmm. all sorts of junk. And there was paint stored down there. And our heroes poured poured some green seat paint on the floor and then stomped in it and then ran all over the basement, including, you know, stamping their feet into the paint and then jumping up and stamping the walls. Mm -hmm. So we're just, you know, we discover it after the show. We're none too pleased. We charge the promoter a fee for cleaning up the mess. We clean up the mess as best we can, but there's not much you can do about paint on cement. So we kind of leave it be. And we don't really think that much more about it until Nirvana just like blows up. And then it was like, we've got Nirvana's footprints (laughs) in our basement. So 
95 comes along and... And then you promptly called the promoter and returned the money, right? Oh, yes. I was very generous in that right. regard. It wasn't that. It was like 75 bucks. It wasn't that much. <laughs> right. <laughs> but anyway, in fact, it was exactly $75. <laughs> okay. Um, so we, we poured a new cement floor. So we lost some of the footprints to, to that. Mm -hmm. But then we were getting ready to spray out, like paint the whole space. Mm -hmm. And <laughs> I'm sitting in, probably sitting here in my office and Bill comes running up out of the basement. Sid, they're going to paint over the Nirvana footprints. <laughs> you have to stop them. And I don't know why he thought that I was needed to go and stop it. But I was, you know, probably because. Exactly. So like, I'm, you know, stomping over there. I'm like, stop, stop, stop. You can't paint over these. These are important. And so the. The contractor is just like, oh, just just when we thought these people were couldn't get any weirder. <laughs> so I convinced them like, okay, here's the largest portion of them all right here. Mm -hmm. So can we mask them and then paint everything else and save it? And <laughs> they were like, yeah, we can do that. So that's what ended up happening was they masked it off, sprayed out the rest of the room and then peeled that away. And so there's this perfectly preserved area of raw cement with green converse footprints stamped cool. on the wall that's awesome that you said that it was important enough to keep yeah and then so we have people all the time come and they ask if they can see the nirvana footprints and yeah. they come and they take photos of them and they do selfies near them and there's a website that is like all things Nirvana and right. so they've got the story about the footprints and they've gotten photos from us of the footprints so okay. cool that's it awesome lives on. real quick I guess let me see how I can ask this question the, I guess it, the two I'm already married well yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, had, I, I scratched that one off you know. um, no I was gonna it's kind of a two-parter you know if just real quick like for 15 seconds or something one of my favorite things was when I asked Bill one night you know I was like just tell me off the top of your head just start saying the names that you've seen in in the Crest Theater just because it was so amazing to me because it's again I have a point of which at you know the earliest that I remember the Crest and what I've seen here but it was a lot before mm -hmm. me. Mm -hmm. I mean, again, you posted a picture of the, the results of a Guar show the other day. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, when I saw that, I had like six or seven of my friends being like, did Guar really play the crest? And Twice. Like, yeah. And I'm like, yeah. And they're like, what? <laughs> and, and so it's it's that kind of unbelievableness. So, I mean, I, I guess if anything, could you just kind of start running Some off? Some names? Yeah. I mean, Christ, when when Bill said you guys had Etta James, I was uh, yeah, floored, I was, you know? Yeah. That is on my list. Okay. So Primus, Guar, Robin Hitchcock, Jim Rose Circus Sideshow, Joan Rivers, Cab Calloway, Sun Ra, Taj Mahal, Etta James... Olivia Newton-John, Blue Oyster Cult, Billy Squire, the She Goes Down Tour, <laughs> Guns N' Roses, I'm trying to think of some of the other, the, like the hair metal, uh, Lipstick, <laughs> Buck Owens and the Buckaroos, mm, Rodney Crowell, oh, Adrian Ballou, Robert Fripp, Sonic Youth, did I already say that? Oh, um, Cyndi Lauper, Robin Williams, Bernie Mac. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, even stand up comedian. Uh, Carrot Top. Okay. <laughs> Gallagher? Yeah, Gallagher. Not twice. <laughs> um, well, I want to end on a goodie, like a 
just like a no way, but I'm not coming up with one. Cold Chamber, The Misfits, uh, oh, Henry Rollins Band lost a lot of seats on that one. <laughs> a lot. Deftones, Little Guilt Shrine, Cake, Panda Bear Greens, uh, Papa Roach, um, Mother Hips. Squeezed out. Oh, I'm sure there's more, but I may oh, no, need. I know. Yeah, I may need help. Chris Christopherson, Don McLean, Merle Haggard, uh, Merle Haggard, a couple of times. Paula Poundstone, many, many times. Mm -hmm. Kathy Griffin, Jonas Brothers. Right before they blew up. Hanson. Wow. <laughs> Nelson. Oh, yeah. All the brother bands. Yeah, yeah. Click five if we're going to do uh, little kitty bands. <laughs> Voice Farm. Were there any of the, the cramps? Okay. More than once. That, that would probably be a, a good one to top off on. Yeah. Yeah. Were there any that you were surprised by in a positive way? Like maybe you were warned, oh, this person's a little touchy, but then it was just a, a hugely pleasant surprise? No, pretty much who everybody who's been described as being an asshole has been one. Okay. They they have lived up to their reputation. Well, I guess that, <laughs> that leads in, into my question. Have there have there been those those moments where even you, you know, in, in all of your evil shit and professionalism and career have, have been tested as far as somebody's attitude goes? No, no, no I have I've never, I've never lost it with an act. Well, yeah, obviously. I've was. wanted to, but but those can just live on in my mind. Absolutely. <laughs> what would you say is your favorite thing about being the proprietor of the club? I would say that probably that there's never, ever the same thing twice. I mean, there's a lot of sameness, but there's a lot of differences also. Probably the most excellent part is um, hearing people as they walk in and saying that they had their first date here or maybe they got engaged to be married here. I love hearing kids at live shows who, you know, they're like 16, 17, 18 years old now, but they remember coming here when they were six, seven, eight years old, mm -hmm. seeing children's plays here. So it's like we're introducing them to the crest in this one way, like Peter Pan, Wizard of Oz, and then we're introducing the crest to them in a totally different way. Whose idea was it for the slogan there on the marquee when you first walk in? Uh, that, uh, I believe that's a Matthias. Oh, okay. And it was actually supposed to say, as you pass through this portal, you leave all the world's cares behind. However, the, the sign company shorted us a W. Oh. And so I remember the day before we opened, having all these letters spread out on the ground and trying to figure out how we can still convey that message without that all important W. Yeah. And so we figured out that we could say, you leave all your cares behind instead of all the world's cares behind. Right. And we tacked it up and it was actually, we tacked it up temporarily. We were going to put it up, you know, much more firmly, but apparently it's firm enough because it's been up there for nearly 28 years. So. <laughs> That's a good run. <laughs> well, thank you very much for sharing some time, some stories. I, I hope to honestly do a part two to this interview. And now that we've gotten some history of the crest and how you ended up in this wonderful cave alcove office of yours, uh, I'd like to obviously know a little bit more about you. So hopefully you'll peg out some time for me to do a, a follow-up interview sometime. Sure. And uh, I hope everybody it gets more invigorated to come down and hang out with you at the crest. Absolutely. Lots of good stuff always going on. <laughs> Thanks very much. <laughs> Thank you.